bum bum bottom 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 bum
full of statues. We've got a lot of statues, and it all began with the Fluke Man. Randy Bowen sculpted it. I even remember the price. It was $119. It was back in the mid-90s, maybe late 90s, Another Universe. Listeners, do you remember Another Universe? They were like those comic book stores that would be planted into malls across the country. They lasted for a little while, but they burned bright and were eventually I remember, extinguished. I remember it being at Fair Oaks Mall, and I remember finding it a little creepy. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, creepy. Why? Because why? Maybe because it had fluke band statues in it, and I was a very delicate oh, child. I know why, because the one at Fair Oaks Mall had the giant statues at the door of yeah. the Predator and the Alien. Yeah, and then they were scary. you could purchase, but I could never afford. I always I always wanted that giant alien for my basement bedroom. <laughs> and, and now that he's married to me, we have a strict rule against and by we I mean I have a strict rule against anything life size. Yeah, that's yeah, no life size, no life size bus, no life size statues here in the Love Nest. Um but you know, from that Randy Bowen purchase led to many other Randy Bowen statues, Death Dealer, Kongzilla. I've been thinking a lot about Kongzilla lately because we just had the trailer for King Kong versus Godzilla. Actually, it's called Godzilla versus King Kong. No, it's not even called that. It's called Godzilla versus Kong. They've decrowned the Kong. Ah, rude. Uh, very rude. I think because Godzilla is the king of the monsters and they don't want competing crowns, maybe? But isn't that a thing? Don't crowns compete yeah. with other crowns I for think, the one great I think, crown? I think they should have kept the king. I think they should have kept the king and King Kong. Uh, but, you know, watching that trailer, I don't want them to be fighting, you know? And, and, and most likely, I think... It's going to end with them teaming up back to back and going up against Mecha Godzilla. I think that's a pretty obvious direction that is being hinted at in this trailer. But what I want is the next movie, which, going back to Randy Bowen, is Kongzilla. The design from Arthur Adams and Randy Bowen, where King Kong and Godzilla mutated and became one and the same. Ooh, oh, so it didn't result from them making sweet, sweet love after uh, saving the Earth that, together? That was not part of the origin uh, of the Kongzilla statue, but it but it could have been. This is the final shot of Godzilla versus Kong for me, personally. Um, uh, King Kong is the little spoon. Godzilla <laughs> is the big spoon. And Godzilla is just whispering in his ears, you're my... Sweet, sweet Kong Zilly. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. Although my final shot would be a push in on, on uh, King Kong's belly. Uh-huh. And, and then we, we push in, we push in, we push in. We pass through his skin and we <gasps> see Kongzilla growing inside. A little, a little sweet, sweet fetus. Yeah. I guess that makes sense that uh, Kong, like if Kong is the impregnated one, it would be a live birth. Where if Godzilla was <laughs> was uh, the pregnant one, it would be a, an egg, I would think. Yeah, and I imagine it's sort of like a junior situation for Kong. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like I like the idea of Kong Zilly, you know, where you have a pet name for, where they have a pet name for each other. Of course they would, because... 76% of extremely happy and sexually satisfied couples use pet names. I learned that from our love guru this month. I learned that from the normal bar. Do we do pet names? Me and you? I know that I definitely do you pet do. names. You do. Yeah, you ha you have a lot of pet names for me. Some of them public, some of them secret. Yeah, I mean, she's told me straight up that there's some that I can't <laughs> even make reference to. So uh, let your imaginations run wild, folks. But I don't really have too many pet names for you. Like, I call you LC. Right? Yeah. L is for Lisa, C is for Christine, your middle name. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm just not that creative. So am I failing you with not uh, with a lack of pet names? 
Well, that's the thing with looking at statistics. Like, are the pet names a result of when you are extremely happy, you're more likely to use pet names? Or because you use pet names, you are extremely happy. Who knows? Duh, do we hear any pet names in Shatterstar Reality Star? Ooh, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Though they all have like mutant names, which can kind of, kind I guess, be, be pet like names? pet names. Also, there's not a lot of alone time between Shatterstar and Richter with this book either. So uh, we might have to do some extracurricular reading to discover what their pet names are for each other. And listeners, if you know what they are, uh, tweet at us. Let us know. Yeah. Well, they're not currently together. In, in the this comic, comic no, either. No, no. And that's definitely a big stumbling block to pet names. <laughs> I, I think it would be weird if after you broke up with someone, you insisted on still calling them your your little lucky star or oh. your shaky, shaky love. Oh, I love lucky star because then it has the Madonna song that you could play along with that pet name. Ooh, I wonder what percentage of extremely happy couples have songs. Uh, do we have a song? Our song could be our first dance song at our our wedding, Common People, as performed by William Shatner. I mean, I do love that song, but... I it mean, doesn't have the benefit of, like, sitting in a restaurant and all of a sudden, it's like, hey, they're playing our song. Right. That would and be a weird restaurant. I don't think we've even listened to that album since we danced to it at our wedding. But we did listen to it into the ground the weeks leading up to that's, our wedding. That's a fact. That's a fact. Oh, man. I, of all the wedding memories I'm the most proudest of, it's dancing to William Shatner's <laughs> Common People, as produced by Ben Folds. It's legit, people. Yeah. I think it's a great album. I do love the thought experiment of what songs would our comic book couples surround themselves with. Oh, like Richter and Shatterstar? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So like Lucky Star, I think is a pretty good one. Uh I'd like to know, again, let's go to our listeners, tweet at us, let us know what you think their songs would be. Like what's their first wedding song? What's the song that they hear in a restaurant that brings a smile to their face and a pitter patter to their heart? I hear the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky opening into a portal, into a parallel universe, but still in the same timeline because you cannot go forward or backward in time. I think that's a great pick, Lisa. <laughs> Congratulations Thank on you. that Thank so you. So you can't, uh, you can't tweet that one because I, I got dibs <laughs> on that one. Now, going into Shatterstar, Lisa, uh, this book in particular, what was your experience with these characters beforehand? I'm pretty sure none, none experience is the correct answer. You never know, like with an X-Man, like maybe he's been in the background, one of them or both of them have been in the background of something that I've read, but neither of them have ever stood out to me. I think the first time you ever saw them was in the Deadpool 2 movie adaptation. Were they really? Well, not. I don't think Richter's in it, but Shatterstar's there. Remember when Deadpool is forming his like X-Force and they all jump out of the plane and immediately die? Yeah. And Shatterstar's the guy who falls into the helicopter blade. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, that's, oh, okay. that, I think that's it. And maybe I some have background not, stuff. I haven't committed the Deadpool films to memory. No. So I'm sorry, I apologize. You do not need to apologize, Lisa. Those movies have enough fans. They don't need you. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, of course, in the 90s, uh, Shatterstar loomed large. I was obsessed with Rob Liefeld and New Mutants and X-Force and Image Comics and all of that. 
but honestly, I didn't really remember anything about this character other than having some mysterious connection to the X-Men character of Longshot and the weird and wonderful realm of Mojo World. We have talked about Mojo World because yep. if you go back to episode 40, Mojo World showed up in Kelly Thompson's Mr. and Mrs. Right. X and was so yes, fun. Yes, yes. Love that run. Love that episode. One of my favorite episodes that we've done. Same. Now, in 2009, Shatterstar joined up with X-Factor Investigations, and this is where his relationship with Richter first started to develop into something more than friends. Shatterstar made his first appearance in New Mutants number 99, written by Fabian Nietzsche and illustrated by Rob Liefeld and published by Marvel Comics in March of 1991. Although technically, the character originally appeared nameless on a pinup proclaiming Visions to Come in New Mutants Annual number 6, published a year earlier. As previously mentioned, Shatterstar does originate from Mojo World, which is not of our universe, but of the Mojoverse, meaning he is both an alien and a dimensional refugee. To say Shatterstar's relationship to Longshot is complicated puts it mildly. I'm just going to go ahead and read his origin as explained on the website Marvel Fandom. This is, this is a quote. Shatterstar is the biological son of former X-Men Longshot and Dazzler. However, due to a temporal paradox, he was also responsible for the creation of Longshot. What? It was revealed that because of Mephisto's manipulation of Shatterstar, that guy again, by sending him back in time to the Mojoverse along with Richter, Shatterstar was discovered and experimented on by Arise, who created Longshot from his DNA. As Longshot was genetically extrapolated from Shatterstar's genes, Star was essentially Longshot's father. This created a paradox when Longshot years later impregnated Dazzler, who then gave birth to Shatterstar. Longshot and Dazzler were mind-wiped to forget the pregnancy, and the Shatterstar infant was sent a hundred years into the future by his own adult self in order to maintain the consistency of the timeline. Okay, what? Yeah, uh, WTH, I have no idea. This is why people don't enjoy reading X-Men comics. They get intimidated. They read a little origin story like that and their mind's just like, this is too much for me. But that's why we're here. We're here to guide you along and to tell you, guess what? A lot of that stuff really doesn't matter. The origin is convoluted, complicated, and super silly. That's all you need to know to enjoy the comic we're going to discuss today. Maybe Shatterstar's song should be, I'm my own grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would apply. <laughs> uh, so what are Shatterstar's abilities? He's got your basic superhuman strength as a result of his genetic tampering. He has hollow bones that make him lighter and quicker. And he's got an accelerated healing factor of sorts. His mutant ability allows him to control electric frequencies and channel the energy into his twin swords. He can also slash open dimensional portals, but they require another individual to serve as his focus where they picture the destination on the other end. So he can't just move himself. He can also move himself, right? I mean, I, like, again, it, it says that he needs uh, a An focus. Anchor. Yeah, yeah. They, Richter does become an anchor for him in this comic. Yes. But at the end of the comic, apologize for jumping ahead, he uses Tina's memory of her Earth. Yeah to open a portal yeah. to put Grandmaster through and she was dead. So yeah, I don't mean I don't I don't know how to explain mutant abilities. I can just tell you that's how that's what that's what they do. 
sounds like magic to me. I hate to break the news, Elisa, but X-Men is more fantasy than science fiction. What? No. <laughs> yes, I like consistency. Is. Now, let's look at Richter. Uh, he's a far less complicated character. His first appearance was in X-Factor number 17, published in June of 1987, written by Louise Simonson and illustrated by Walter Simonson. Yay! As his name implies, he has the ability to cause seismic activity. He creates earthquakes. However, Richter was one of the many mutants depowered as a result of Wanda Maximoff uttering no more mutants at the end of House of M. From 2005 to 2011, he remained powerless, but he was a vital member of X-Factor Investigations. The Scarlet Witch eventually, you know, returned his mutant gifts to him during the events of Avengers The Children's Crusade, which we also discussed in our Vision and Virginia episode from a few weeks back. I love like these two characters are connected in so many ways. Wanda, Mephisto. I, I just, I, this is why you read comics. This is why you love Marvel. It's also why it's so frustrating sometimes, uh, but I, 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 I dig these connections. And you, the reader, can make it as simple as, or as complicated as you want. You can just think about the issue in front of you, or you can think about the entire damn universe. Right, and as the writer, same deal. Tim Seeley's not, not going to incorporate everything that's gone down with Shadowstar and Richter. He's picking and choosing buffet style. And when in doubt, it's Mephisto. Yeah, it's always Mephisto, that <laughs> jerk. Uh, while I'm super excited to be jumping from X-Couple to X-Couple over the course of the next four episodes, that's right, we're going to go from here to Storm and Callisto. It's a bit of an experiment for us. There's something, you know, just incredibly compelling when it comes to playing the field with a whole bunch of characters. I also feel like we're doing a bit of disservice, though, to Shatterstar and Richter. It's clear to me, based on what little research and reading I've done so far, that there is a lot more to say about these two than what we get in Shatterstar Reality Star. And I know of at least one listener, Aaron Conlon, who really wishes we would devote a full four eps to these two lovebirds. But who knows? We could return to Shadowstar and Richter someday. If this episode gets enough love with retweets, likes, and listens, then we'll pay attention and have no choice but to return. <laughs> That's right. It's on you guys to make it happen. LOL. <laughs> now, while next week we may be hopping over to a new ex-couple, we're keeping true with our love guru or our collection of love gurus. Over the course of these next four episodes, Lisa, what's our self-help book this week and how is it going to help us explore the romance of Richter and Shatterstar? We are going to be using The Normal Bar, the surprising secrets of happy couples and what they reveal about creating a new normal in your relationship. A book about bettering relationships through the super squishy science of statistics <laughs> by Chrisana Northrup, Dr. Pepper Schwartz, and Dr. James Witt. When you first hear the title, it may seem like the normal bar is a ruler by which you can make your relationship more normal, like normalcy is something that you strive for, but that is far from the case. If you think about it, everyone is looking for a relationship that is outside of the norm, something extraordinary. If we're using the till death do us part metric for measuring the success of a relationship, which means that every relationship that doesn't end in one or both partners dying is a failure, which Brad and I don't endorse, by the way, then the vast majority of relationships are failures. Even happily partnered peeps have a couple of exes back in Texas, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so the most normal thing is for couples to break up, but that is not what the normal bar is. It's not a standard 
or a benchmark. The conceit of the book, as it is presented in the introduction, is that Chrisanna Northrup hit a rough patch with her partner Mark, where they just were not happy. They had been married for over a decade and were raising three children together, and she found herself wondering, is this as good as it gets? Is this normal? She started doing a casual poll of her closest friends and discovered that some of them were in the same boat, struggling to stay above water. She knew that there had to be some happy couples out there who were enjoying their life with their partner on a day-to-day -day basis. How could she get a piece of their normal? She felt like she needed a greater pool of people to compare her relationship to, more examples of normals to draw from. So she began reaching out to the experts, Dr. Pepper Schwartz, a relationship expert with a PhD from Yale, and Dr. James Witt, a social science researcher with a PhD from Harvard. Ooh. Ooh. Together, they built a survey of over 1,300 relationship questions from the obvious to the intimate, and their plan was to create a massive data pool so they can compare answers across age, duration of relationship status, ethnicity, income, religion, family size, and nationality. This survey does include homosexual couples, but maintains the gender binary, unfortunately. This book came out in 2013, and we've come a long way, baby. But lack of representation of non-binary people does undermine and delegitimize a lot of these findings. And that is not the only reason I think the lessons and advice in this book should be taken with a massive grain of salt. I'll be going over some of the Normal Bar's methodology and some of my inexpert reservations I have about statistical data on an upcoming episode. Don't you worry. Once they had their survey, what they really needed was that data pool. So they partnered with Reader's Digest, AOL, the Huffington Post, and the AARP, and had over 70,000 survey participants, which yielded more than 1.7 million data points. At this time, this was the most extensive survey of romantic relationships, and there have been peer-reviewed oft referred to scientific papers based on way fewer participants. For a comparison, the paper by Drs. Alfred Kinsey and Wardell Pomeroy, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male from 1948, where the Kinsey scale originated, mm -hmm. was based on 8,000 surveys. Mm -hmm. At the time of the publication of The Normal Bar, the survey was, quote, still going strong, though I've since <laughs> checked the survey and it has been taken down. Huh. Boo, I wanted to answer those cues. Huh. Yeah, I would love to participate in it. Yeah. In her introduction, Northrop goes on to say that once they had 25,000 respondents, Dr. Witt started analyzing the data and Northrop started putting the information to work and she started seeing the rewards of their efforts in her relationship with Mark right away. The introduction makes it sound like Dr. Schwartz and Witt are just the number crunchers and Northrop is the one synthesizing the data and turning it into advice she can apply to her marriage as we play along at home. But all three are listed as authors on the cover, so I get the feeling that this was just done for relatability, approachability, and narrative purposes, and they may share the writing credits equally. The Normal Bar book is split into three parts. One, getting together. Two, living together. And three, staying together. And the parts are further split into chapters on different topics relating to romance, sex, raising a family, financial and household responsibilities, and so on. 
Each chapter presents statistical data relating to the topics, then synthesizes the data into actionable advice and ends with a toolkit with exercises you can do by yourself or with your partner. Since we're going to be exploring different ex-couples and different stages of their relationships with different issues from episode to episode, I'm going to try to use the chapter headings to help troubleshoot issues as they arise. For Shatterstar and Richter, I'll be relying on data presented in the first part of the book, Getting Together, even though they've technically already gotten together and broken up. But that's just as far as I've read in this book. I'll be dropping the sweet, sweet stats throughout our book convo, and we'll see if we can use those stats to make their and our relationship even better. But Lisa, before we can do that, it's time for some words of affirmation. This week, we are utterly thrilled, kind of flabbergasted to receive a handful of new members to our Patreon page. Yes! Our show simply would not be as good as it is without you guys. Recently, our patron contributors have allowed us to update our software and equipment, particularly in the realm of when we do interviews for our Creator Corner, and hopefully you'll be hearing a big difference in those Skype recordings. Upcoming! Yeah, let's cross let's cross our fingers there. Uh, but as we do for all our patrons, after they sign up, we deliver them some encouraging words of affirmation. Uh, they're like uh, mantras you can take with you and they're not just for our patrons like if you if you're not a patron you can still take these mantras these affirmations and apply them to your life um i i have taken it upon myself to write them down i keep track of all of these uh affirmations and you know like if you read them aloud and if you focus in on these words like there's genuine benefit. There's, it's, you know, power of positivity. It, there is an effect there. Language it directs the alchemy of the mind. So if you're putting positive words into your brain hole, positive, wonderful feelings will come out of it. Yeah, so these words of affirmation have been curated and adapted from theblissfulmind.com. Our first patron, Lisa, is Matt Herms. You make a difference in the world simply by existing in it. Corey Sanford. Your mind is full of brilliant ideas. Chris Chaka. You accept your emotions and let them serve their purpose. Cody. You give yourself space to grow and learn. Jamie Garner. You give yourself permission to do what is right for you. Yeah. Mm, I love, I, I, you know, Lisa picked a few. I picked a few. Uh, I think those are, uh, what is that? Five, five exceptionally great affirmations to apply to your everyday existence. A fistful of affirmations. We just gave each other a high five. Yeah, we did. A fistful (laughs) of affirmations. Uh, Of course, we don't demand that all of you join our Patreon. And we know that not everyone can financially afford to do so, especially right now. That's totally okay. But if you want to, you can still support the podcast by contributing a rating and a review to our Apple podcast page. These things really do help CBCC grow and move up the charts and reach more listeners. Thank you in advance or in the past if you've already done it. We're still grateful. Now, returning to the main topic of the show, for this week's discussion, we consulted the runes, spoke to our listeners, reached out to our Twitter followers and general fans of the Shatterstar Richter romance, and they pointed us to the five-issue miniseries Shatterstar Reality Star, 
written by Tim Seeley, penciled by Carlos Villa and Gerardo Sandoval, inked by Sandoval and Juan Velasco, colored by Carlos Lopez, and lettered by Corey Petit. These issues were released between October 2018 and February of 2019. Here's the basic plot synopsis taken straight from Goodreads. Gladiator, warrior, hero! The man called Shadowstar has been many things, but one thing he's always been is deadly. He's not a man you want to cross, or well, you'll learn that fact all too well, or you'll learn that fact all too well. That's hard to say. Shadowstar <laughs> had found a new life, found peace. But with a simple act of violence, his world is turned upside down. Nothing makes sense anymore, except for a pair of double-bladed swords and a single path forward that guarantees bloodshed. And as Shadowstar's past comes back to haunt him in the present, his future isn't guaranteed. Sharpen your swords, true believers, and get ready to fight. With lives hanging in the balance, Shadowstar is pushed to the brink of... Oh, no, hold on. What is that? Shadowstar is pushed to the brink by the life he thought he left behind and goes toe-to-toe with the only opponent with a prayer of taking him down himself. Throwing the word Shadowstar multiple times into any paragraph really messes up my tongue. <laughs> I, th I thought you did pretty well, especially with trying to make sense of this paragraph that seems to be really trying to be super vague. Like everything they say is technically true about the story, but somehow we learn nothing in that entire plot summary. I, at the same time, what I like about it is it has a lot of attitude, which I tried to bring to that paragraph. Oh, you did, and in you know, space. Like, anytime they reference Stan Lee's True Believers, I get a little excited, so I don't know. Like, I appreciate that it's vague. It's not a spoilery trailer. I'm, I'm cool with it, and I like its attitude. Uh, as we said, it comes from Tim Seeley, and I'm excited to finally get some Seeley comic writing into our show. He's probably best known for his Image Comics creation, Hack Slash, but I really dug his run on the Grayson Solo book over at DC Comics with Tom King, and his Nightwing follow-up is excellent as well. Oh, you know what, though? I just realized... We have had Seeley on the show in the past, just not here in the main show. We talked about him in our Patreon episode. That's right, with Money Shot. Yeah, Money which Shot. I enjoyed a lot. You loved Money Shot. Yeah, you, you know, you you got you got a little you like that kinky stuff, Lisa. You like the kinky stuff. Sometimes only on Patreon though. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm I'm just happy to have Seeley here on the main feed. He's a fun writer, and I think Shadowstar is the perfect example of that. Yeah, I super enjoyed this volume. I do think it's also worth noting that when you open the first issue of this Shadowstar miniseries off, it gives you a little paragraph saying, this is what you need to know about Shadowstar. And it doesn't look anything like the stuff we were talking about at the beginning of this episode with his incredibly convoluted and complicated backstory. Lisa, do you want to read just like that, those few sentences that start off the first issue to give background on Shatterstar? Genetically engineered with enhanced physical abilities and weapons, mastery for gladiatorial combat in Mojo World. The man dubbed Gavidra Seven was transported through time and space to the present day Marvel Universe. Okay. Where he oh. remains, there's a little more. <laughs> keep going, keep going, keep going. Where he remains, the warrior called Shatterstar. So what do we have there? We have Mojo World, we have time travel, we have dimensional travel, but no mention of Longshot, Dazzler, 
being his own father, grandfather, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and um, I have the trade paperback, so I didn't even have those couple of sentences to guide me into who Shatterstar was, but they give me enough exposition in the first issue of this book where I'm like, I got it. I think the fact of the matter is this, that most people just don't care, myself included sometimes. Yeah, I think the people who care are the people who've been with this character for a long time and his origin is you know, precious to them or they have a version of their origin that they wish it was. Like, I know there are a lot of Shadowstar fans who introduced, got introduced to the character like I did back in the 90s. There was the mystery. The mystery was interesting. He was from the future. What's his relation to Longshot? And once they answered that, it became less interesting to them or disappointing, right? Mm -hmm. It's what happens with a lot of these characters who have the shadowy past. Often the people who originate the shadowy past don't get to answer that question. Some other writer comes along and answers that question and it might not be in with the theme of that first writer's idea. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. But like you said, does it really matter for this the the purposes of this story for the purposes of this recording? Not really. To me, right now, meeting Shatterstar for the first time, the most interesting thing about him is that he's a landlord. Yes, and he's created this kind of safe space for people who are like him, trapped outside of their own parallel dimension or time. I love the way this comic begins. The first page is this mighty splash of Shatterstar back in his gladiatorial element drawn by Gerardo Sandoval. And Sandoval covers all the flashbacks. All the flashbacks are drawn by him and they are heavily um, cross-hatched and hyper-stylized. And cragified. Very cragified. I really, really dig it. But then you turn to the very next page and we have the main artist, Carlos Villa, and it's this bright, poppy. CW. CW. <laughs> and then the, the way it's colored, it, like the sky has this pink hue. It's dreamy. Yeah. He's dreamy. Yeah, he is dreamy. And that contrast is really exciting. And so I feel like Tim Seeley and the artists are interested in having a conversation with the Shatterstar that we grew up with, with the X-Force Shatterstar. And they're using that flashback method as a way of saying like, we acknowledge it, but we're also gonna let this go. I also think it establishes tone. Like yes. you, he feels like a different person and that's reflected in this highly contrasted art. Yeah, and you know, because people change, they evolve as they get older. And the Shatterstar of Carlos Villa's art is not the Shatterstar of Gerardo Sandoval's art. And that's what this volume is really about. Can a person truly and completely change? If you were to take who you are as your present self and put you back in the circumstances that you grew out of mm. or worked through or suffered through, like, would you make the same decisions? Would you fall back on those old perhaps poisonous habits? Yeah. And Shatterstar says, nay, yeah. I truly am a better person. I am no longer a warrior. I am a landlord. And how exciting is all that landlord stuff? Like his tenants, I, I want stories. I want mini series. I want ongoing series based on all of his tenants. I was so disappointed when Brad broke it to me very gently that 
Carl Snortenthau does not have his own series because I need that in my life. Not only does he not have his own series, but this is his first appearance. I need Pug Smasher. Where are my Pug Smasher action figures? Where are my Pug Smasher uh, uh, pops? Give Any it libertarian me. canine will do, frankly. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, I would be curious to see. Like, I haven't done much research. Does Pug Smasher show up anywhere else? And the character of the End Woman, I She's also cool really, really like. Uh, and then, and not just because she has a gun for a leg. No, because she's the end woman. Like, what a great name. What a mm -hmm. great concept to that character. Like, all the inhabitants of this building, they are time displaced. They're from different realities. And she's like this Terminator who's gone back to assassinate a demon. But instead of assassinating the child who would grow up to be this demonic presence, she finds a way to care for that child and provide a safe space for her. And... She nurtures her into being a, a productive human being. It makes sense to me that he would want to establish this safe haven for times displaced or universe displaced persons. I'm sure he is in no small part inspired by working so closely with the X-Men. Yeah, and you do see that with other time displaced characters where they feel like they are part of the group, but also not part of the group. And that's a very isolating sphere to inhabit. And so in this house, in this uh, building that he has constructed for these people, they have a kinship that people who aren't time displaced have, right? So like the X-Men have a place, a safe haven with the Xavier's Institute, the time displaced people, like Bishop should be hanging out with Shatterstar in this building. Absolutely. I think also he's found a lot of meaning and purpose. Like he is truly like a full service landlord. He's answering yep. Tina's questions and he's Taking breaking out, out brotherly fights and all of this stuff. All our landlord does is send us passive aggressive emails. And the occasional $5 Starbucks card on our birthday. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> um, but with Ben, I think he may have a little of that acts of service mm. in him. If I were to just like try to figure out his love language, he gets a lot of satisfaction of being helpful. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. But I think he prefers to stay emotionally detached mm. from the drama. Like he's happy to break up a, a friendly argument between Crimzor and Golden, but he doesn't really wanna be wrapped up in it. Yeah. And we see this in his weekly solo treks to go see some theater. Mm. He, which I think is interesting that he has yeah. this obsession with live theater, considering he's come from Mojo World, yeah. where drama and life were so toxically woven together. And I think it's important to note what play is he seeing in his free time, but Titus Adronicus, the most effed up, <laughs> messed up Shakespeare play. But he comforts in the fact that like, I can understand these characters. I'm with them for about two and a half hours or so. Yeah. And then I'm out. Yeah, he's gone. He likes to be able to ghost from the drama. Yeah, yeah. And then where did, but where does he ghost from the drama? So while he's at the play, uh, well, his building is being attacked. Uh, but while he's at the play, he leaves, building's being attacked. He doesn't go right back to his building. He goes and he takes a peek. He takes a little glance at Richter. 
The one that got away. His ex owns a music club of some sort, a bar. You can kind of read the sign in the panel. It's definitely an R-O-C-K. Perhaps that it could that first letter could also be a K. I like to imagine that it's called Rocket. Yeah. R-O-C-K-I-T, because like he makes earthquakes and it makes the earth rock back and forth, but also when you're dancing and you shake your booty, it's like you're rocking it. It could be rock Roman numeral two, or it could be Rocky, Rocky. two. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be Rocky two because it doesn't have enough letters. It could be Rocky one. Oh, oh. interesting. <laughs> uh, I like mine better. I'm sure people know what club Richter owns. If you do, let us know. Tweet at us. Because uh, I want to go there. But he's got a really cool establishment. Which Ben is totally creeping on. He's He walks by makes dead eye contact, <laughs> then walks away. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, there's obviously tension there. There is um, some sense of frustration, some sense of lack of trust. Lucky for us, we have a narrator who explains all of the uh, underlying exposition and narration who does, spoilers, I guess, turn out to be a character later in the book, and it's totally weird. It makes no sense, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. As he is making that furtive glance at his ex-lover, he's remembering their last conversation together. Through tears, Julio asked why Ben's attentions had waned and why his affections were spurned. Don't I interest you anymore, he said through tears. The worst part is, I know the problem with us, he said, going out the door. We don't fight enough. The first part of the normal bar doesn't offer a lot about, like, how to fight or better communication, because it's more about, like, the beginnings of a relationship. But it may shed some light on why Julio might feel like Ben's not paying the same attention to him or not showing affection in the same way. 40%, according to the normal bar, 40% of all couples rarely engage in public displays of affection. And that's not just open making out, because that's gross. Like handheld? Yeah, uh, yeah, any caressing, hand-holding, kissing, hugging, etc. With only 13% displaying public affection at least once a week. So back... In the pre-pandemic days, <laughs> uh, according to this rubric, Brad and I were PDAing all over the place. If we're walking in the same area, we're holding hands. Yeah, for sure. Perhaps the wane in affection has to do with their age. In 18 to 24-year-olds, 25% never or hardly ever PDA, while in 35 to 44-year-olds, I don't know why they skip the, there's like a big chunk of age missing. <laughs> I don't know why they present the information in this way. In 35 to 44 year olds, nearly 37% never or hardly ever PDA. And in 45 and older, 49% never or rarely PDA. So maybe he's just aged out of a certain amount of the PDA. Interesting. Or, a certain amount. Yeah. Or it could be the duration of their relationship. After 10 years of a relationship, I don't know how long they were together. I mean, it's impossible to say given the sliding timeline of comic books. Yeah, but after 10 years or by the age of 45, almost half of all couples stop PDA. But not all affection, of course, happens out on them streets. That's right. Maybe Richter just wants some more cuddles. 
35% of all couples report to never or rarely cuddle. That I'm aghast at that That's uh, sad. statistic. That's 35%? <laughs> That's a lot. That's no good. I don't like hearing that. Cuddle your partner. Yeah, right now. If it, I I'm I'm envisioning that our partnered listeners are spooning with their partners at the time of listening to this podcast. At the pod. same time, though, like, I don't want to shame anyone whose love language is not physical touch because, you know, people get uh, emotional reactions and emotional benefits through other means. That's an excellent point. But that just because you don't feel like cuddles doesn't mean that your partner doesn't necessarily interpret that. Yeah, as you got to get on the affection. same page. Yeah. Right. This is a great time to discuss, openly discuss cuddling with your partner. But on, uh, but keep in mind, only 6% of non-cuddlers were sexually satisfied. So the vast majority of people who are not cuddling were also not sexually satisfied. And 11% of non-cuddlers... Only 11% of non-cuddlers report that they're in a happy relationship. Yeah. But we have to keep in mind, this is all self-reporting. Oh, yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. So no scientist is going into these people's homes There's and no observing, like, yeah. <laughs> like I, I, we don't know what they consider cuddling, too. Like, I only consider it cuddling when a piece of my body is in a wet part of a piece of their body. Like, what's cuddling? <laughs> oh, my God, Lisa. 80%. This is a... We don't swear on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> but we're weirdly graphic. Oh, man, man, man. Okay, you go. Keep going. Oh, my God. Um, This doesn't apply to Richter and Shatterstar, but 82% of childless couples cuddle while only 68% of child-rearing couples report that okay. they cuddle. So um, it's not because they have uh, little rugrats running around. But if you have little rugrats running around, do a little, um, and you feel like lack of cuddles, do a little uh, inventory, I guess. But I want to get back to what this unseen narrator says is their problem, or what Richter said was their problem, that they don't fight enough. And that in fiction is often an indication that there is not a lot of passion in, in the relationship. And mm-hmm. so is that what we're to assume here? Or like, should there, I mean, like, frankly, like when I hear like, oh, we don't fight enough, uh, I, good. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't think we, like, we don't value the moments we fight. One of the major themes of this volume is that Shatterstar was made as a fighter, a weapon. Yeah. And so in the times in his life he's not fighting, he is rudderless. And so I think by like the idea of we don't fight enough is more like you don't you do not see a purpose in our being he's together. He's in a passive mode. Right. So that's what this whole subplot with the tenants uh-huh. is about is re- uh, helping Shatterstar realize he is still fighting. Being a good landlord is still fighting. Being a good partner and lover is still fighting. Fighting doesn't always, sometimes it's, we love it when it's in our comic books, kicky, not in real life, but in our comic books, kicky, punchy. Yeah, we want the Or yelly, screamy. Yeah. We, want, we want our comic books to be Titus Andronicus. We don't want our comic books to be, uh, something that's not Titus and My left foot. Yeah, yeah. Although I like my left foot. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to be 
actively at odds with someone else right. to have passion, to fight, to keep life what it should be ideal. In contrast to his relationship with Richter, through the flashbacks, we see his relationship with Gringrave. And actually, before we can even really talk about Gringrave, we have to go back to what went down at the apartment building. Gringrave's crew from Mojo World. The death sponsors. The death sponsors have kidnapped all of Shatterstar's tenants, including Pug Smasher. Not all of them, because one did end up getting dead. Oh, yeah, dead. Night Dwayne. Thrasher. Yeah, Dwayne. Not Night Thrasher from 616, but an old man version of Night Thrasher from a different universe. Which sounds like noir, and I'm into it. Oh, I love Night Thrasher. We gotta read some new Warriors comics, Lisa, for sure. But Shatterstar puts two and two together thanks to Dwayne's description. Uh, Dwayne actually kills one of them in the process. Time slot. And, and Shatterstar realizes that his old flame grin Gringrave is responsible. And Gringrave is like this Sailor Moon, this demonic Sailor Moon character. And I think what's interesting about that is he like she's literally based off of Sailor Moon because writer Tim Seeley and he actually tweeted to us in response to it. From the source, you guys. Yeah, yeah. In response to a post we put out a while back that he imagined because the villains of Longshot's era grew up watching 80s American TV, and he mentions that there's actually a Michael Jackson warrior in the original Longshot miniseries, that this generation would grow up watching 90s and early aughts Japanese TV, hence the Sailor Moon getup. I'm into it. The reference is not lost on me. <laughs> it does look exactly like Sailor Moon. Not subtle. While... Shatterstar is doing his detective work, we get a flashback of their meet cute and Gringrave immediately starts praising his appearance, calling, saying he has a good body, it's firm, taut, not overly muscled. That's actually a pretty <laughs> fine point. I, I do like a, a, a gentleman who is firm and taut, but not overly muscled. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you're definitely not overly muscled. That's true. No. <laughs> um, I'm doughy. The entire time she's approaching him to fight him, she's praising his appearance. According to the normal bar... 39% of all men and 24% of all women report that their partners never or hardly ever compliment their appearance. 9% of men and 18% of women said their partners compliment their appearance every day. In unhappy couples, around 50% of men and 38% of women report their partners don't compliment their looks. So her being very open about her enjoying his looks is is good for their relationship. I mean, that's a tricky thing, right? Like, it's something that I had to learn to be comfortable with early on in our relationship, complimenting you, not just, like, on your body, but, you know, like, the, whatever. The outfit. I, I, I would often... <laughs> Ask for comments on clothes, which Brad, even today, he's like not anxious to give. I mean, I, it's still something that I have to really pay attention to uh, because I think it speaks to my own sort of insecurities about my own body. You know, like, you know, like whenever Lisa compliments how I look, 
I immediately brush it off and because I think she's a liar. No. But then <laughs> I do have to remember like, oh, no, no, she did marry me for reasons. I and could have picked anybody on this planet. I'm an amazing catch. And one of those reasons was probably that she finds me attractive I in do. some fashion. In every fashion. Uh, yeah, and, but like, you know, so for me, learning to give compliments was also about learning to receive compliments. Mm, that's a big one. I also have the tendency of batting off compliments, especially when I'm not yeah. feeling my best. But I have to be careful with that because if I, because I do want compliments, words of affirmation is my love language. But if you language. constantly contradict my compliments, you're going to stop getting compliments. No, it's a delicate balance of being like, okay. Are you ready, Brad, to check in with my self-esteem? Because it's not great. We've had this conversation. Like, we we have discussed this, you know. And we've discussed this fairly recently, too. So it's not something that we have, like, achieved or unlocked. It's something that we're still working with. But it is important. It is important to see the beauty in your partner, compliment your partner, let them know what you see in them. And then when they do so in return, accept it and consider it, cherish it. Yeah, I, I mean, in a, if I was like perfect, I would I would say let's make a rule of never not accept compliments. Always just absorb compliments. But at the same time, I can't promise that because no. I'm a trash person sometimes, just like everybody. <laughs> We're working on it. We're working on it. Just like, uh, well, not just like Grave and Shatterstar. They're done. They are working very hard. She has taken on a mentorship role. She's giving him valuable lessons of how to make it in Mojo World. Before we move on, I think I, sh I want to mention one more thing, one more normal bar of sexually satisfied couples, self-reporting, 85% of men and 52% of women say their partners do not compliment their appearance. Yeah. Like, if you're not thinking about your partner's body, you're probably not enjoying your partner's body or engaging with your partner's body. So if you want to keep your you know, sexual satisfaction going, try to engage. <laughs> yeah. Your marriage is more than a to-do list. It's also like a let's get it done list. <laughs> Sexually done. <laughs> Absolutely. But again, like if your partner is not complimenting you or is not giving you those, <laughs> you should talk about it because it could be, like I was saying, a reflection of their own insecurities, right? Mm, yeah. And those are habits that we have to learn. That's that's a tool that we have to teach ourselves. Yeah, and guess what? Fake it till you make it. If you find that you don't compliment your partner enough, look for opportunities. Yeah, I mean, you have to watch your partner, ogle your partner, remember why you got together sexually in the first place. And even if the body is not the same body that you got married to necessarily, think about everything you've been through to have that body and have access to that body. Narratives are sexy. Especially when they have a lot of flashbacks. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, so it, getting back into the main narrative of Shatterstar Reality Star, uh, our buddy, Ben, gets his costume on and goes on the hunt for Grin Grave. And 
we learn in the beginning of the second issue that Gringrave has taken these tenets to Horus Four, which is a planet of gods who used to leave uh, this planet and would disguise themselves as, as Greek gods. Zeus, for example, is implied to have been uh, a citizen of Horus Four, but in recent days, the citizens of Horus Four, the gods of Horus Four, have fallen on hard times due to economic and environmental collapse, and they were ripe for the pickings. And who came along to manipulate them? The Grand Master. And the Grand Master, Elder of the Universe, Cosmic Trickster, a character we have discussed here on the show when we dealt with Don and Norn as seen in Alred and Slot's Silver Surfer, uh, he's here. He set up his own version of Mojo World on Horse 4. He has created gladiatorial games to pacify the masses. But apparently the old school knockdown dragouts just aren't doing it for those of Horse 4. They want their entertainment to mean something. They want it to be gritty, high drama. And that's why all of the narration up to this yeah. point has been Grandmaster yeah. setting up this huge bout between Shatterstar and Greengrave. Uh, I mean, what? That does, what? How, <laughs> what? How does he know all this stuff? He's a god, friend. Yeah. Omnipotent. Yeah. Omnipresent. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's true. That's true. He he is the Grandmaster. It's there in the name. He also seems to have these like little round drone cameras following them around. And yeah. He's a pervert. The drones do catch another scene between Richter and Shatterstar. Shatterstar goes to Richter's bar because he needs something. He needs to find out where Gringrave went since her transporter was killed. And apparently Julio is running like a moving mutants around to different places. Like an under underground railroad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's going to know where the nearest available transportation device is, I guess. But uh, he walks in and Richter is automatically annoyed like it has been hurting him to see someone who has been so important to him just make meaningful eye contact and right. disappear so he has a lot of pent up annoyance and so he like just lays it all out there like I've seen you skulking around and he gets upset and he causes a mini earthquake and now you know it's a rock bar so there were posters up and now he has to put them up again and that's annoying and he says I can't give you what you need. The thing is, Ben, for a guy who knows he's not getting what he needs, you sure don't seem to know what you want. I think Richter is totally justified in feeling the way that he does here. You know, he has not seen Shatterstar in a while. And the next time he sees Shatterstar properly, the next time they have a conversation, it's because Shatterstar wants something out of Richter. And, you know, that's going to annoy anybody in this situation. Especially when you're the kind of exes where if you see each other from across the street, it does ruin your evening. Yes. Yeah. But Shatterstar is also an acts of service. So... He doesn't have the vocabulary in his mm. love language to show Richter that he loves him, except for, I can help you, you can help me. And so this is, from his point of view, a great excuse to finally reach out. So he sees this as him reaching out, and he needed that push. And getting help from Julio will be an affirmation of his love. Like, um, Richter 
still loves me and he'll show it by helping me. Yeah. And these flashbacks with Graingrave on Mojo World serve to contextualize his complete lack of fluency when it comes to romantic or social interactions. That scene with Richter is followed up with a flashback to Gringrave on Mojo World, and they have just left the arena and they were victorious, and he feels this rush, and Gringrave goes like, that's the rush of knowing you could be nothing, but instead you are. And she says, this is our lesson too. You have to use that rush of surviving as motivation to continue going forward. Mm. So on Mojo World, he was trained to be motivated by his past. He was supposed to use his past to protect to project him into the future, where when you're in a relationship with someone, you always want to be motivated by the future. You want to be pulled into the future, not pushed from behind from the past. Oh, that's an excellent point. I love that. That yeah, I mean that that defines where Shatterstar is now and why he's adrift. I think a lot of people can relate to that too. People who have been through something very hard, going like, I got through that, and because I got through that. I have to keep going, yeah. but you don't want to be your past to be your motivation because that's not going to be sustaining. You want your future to be your motivation. You want to be drawn into the future. You can use your past as part of your hero story, but you need to have an, an aim. Yeah, you have to have an answer to now what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. From that argument, however, they do come to an understanding and Richter does agree to help Shatterstar out and... When they teleport into battle to fight Gringrave for the first time together, Shatterstar catches this smell, this scent of lake water that reminds him of the small resort town in Michigan where the two of them used to uh, get away together, like have a little romantic uh, vacation. Which Julio would refer to as near-life experiences. So when they were with the X-Men or doing whatever superhero stuff they were doing, uh, Julio felt like they were not living their lives and they only got time together when they were in Michigan, which is, uh, I, I don't <laughs> the know. The most My, romantic getaway. I don't know. They make it sound kind of sweet, I guess. But it sounds to me that Julio was feeling a little romantically deprived. When couples stop spending romantic time together, they often lose sexual interest in each other. 63 out of 62. Did you hear me gearing up for a normal bar? <laughs> I, I saw it. I saw it happening. 63 to 62% of American couples feel romantically deprived. But romance doesn't always have to take a, a luxurious Airbnb trip to Michigan. <laughs> when the normal bar survey asked about their most romantic memory, most of the stories involved a sense of privacy, excitement, and an element of surprise, and only a relative few mentioned extravagant trips or gifts. 64% of women and 88% of men who report never receiving romantic gifts are sexually unsatisfied. 88% of extremely happy couples have regular date nights. So yeah. when Richter and Shatterstar get back together- That's a date night. Yeah, they're going to have to- set aside 
sacred time where like, this is our together time. We want to do something that's exciting. We want to do something surprising for each other. For them, would you consider this action scene like a date for them? Would they consider going out patrolling or whatever part of their date night? No, because I think that it really is their work. Mm. Is it though? I think it's hard. Like when you're, you share a job with your significant other, where does professionalism end and sexy time begin? And like in fighting for a couple who wishes to have more fighting, or at least one partner wishes that there was more fighting, scenes like this could be like considered romantic. Yeah, maybe if, like, clearly it's not to Julio. I mean, I think that's established because he is longing for the wide lakes of Michigan. That's true, yeah, yeah. So to me, I go, like, maybe if afterwards they set aside some time to talk about it or, like... Like, What do you consider a date? uh, To me, I do like to say to you, my sweetheart, like, okay, we're on a date now. (laughs) Like, literally, I'll do it whenever. And, And it becomes even harder in this pandemic time, right? Like, we really do have to schedule dates because there aren't really too many places to go. So we will, we always have a sense of privacy, but we increase our privacy by saying, okay, we're putting away our phones. We include a sense of excitement of let's watch a movie that's new. Sometimes we play board games. Sometimes I'll make a meal I've never made before. Yeah. Like those kinds of elements. And uh, we do surprise each other with gifts all of the time. That is true. Because we love shopping. We do love shopping. 72% of respondents said that they never take vacations as a couple And only half of those respondents have kids. Mm. So I think it's bizarre that once you are in a couple, you never take trips anymore. We we love taking trips. We do. We're desperate to take trips. Oh, man. As soon as we get those, the double shot, pow, pow, and we're all vaccinated, we're going all over the place. Oh, yeah. Over this fight scene with Richter and Shatterstar versus the death sponsors, the Grandmaster is narrating and says, like, Shatterstar has always been seen as a fighter. He was seen as a fighter on Mojo 5, in the Cadre Alliance, um, by Cable when he was being used for the future of mutant kind. But nobody had really seen him as a man, as a person, until Richter. And Shatterstar begins to wonder, like, how come this one person who saw me as complete, why did I push him away? And then we get another flashback to Gringrave and Shatterstar in bed, and Shatterstar gives her those three little words, tells her, I love you. And she gets out of bed and shames him. And he's like, hey, I'm just, I'm living the rush. I'm, I'm living for now. And she's like, you can never get attached to someone with Feelings. You should never have anything beyond the physical because when you give something of yourself away, they can turn that against you and use it to hurt you. So you should never love anything. So he's literally gotten the message at a very vulnerable time. Like, if you express love, you're going to get it splashed back in your face. Yeah, you're vulnerable. Exactly. 74% of sexually satisfied couples say, I love you every day, and 88% of extremely happy couples say, I love you every day. But does it matter if when you say it, you actually mean it? 
<laughs> Short answer is yes. 1% of extremely happy couples report they do occasionally not mean those three little words, while around 25% of extremely happy couples report saying I love you without meaning it, while 20% of extremely unhappy couples report saying that they never mean it. Yeah, that's brutal. I hate hearing that. I hate hearing that. I, when you when you were just reading off those statistics, I immediately thought to the first time I said I love you to you, Aww. the first time, which I immediately regretted. It was after one of our earliest dates, and uh, you were getting out of the car, and you know, like, bye, take care, and I instinctively just said, like, I love you. Because your family says I love you all of the time. Yeah, my family says I love you after every phone call. Yeah. Uh, but I remember saying I love you, and then you said I love you too, and then you shut the door, and then I had to, like, think about, well, I accidentally said I love you. I reflexively said I love you, but did she reflexively say I love you? Tortured. Your the expression on your face when you said it was aghast. <laughs> like you looked horrified by what you had just said. So I like that first I love you was me trying like I it's not like you're putting a band-aid on it? Yeah, a little bit. Cause <laughs> it did feel really soon. Yeah, and I mean it was soon. It was like after our third day. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was a it was a total uh yeah. um amateur move on your point yep, yep, part, yep. but like but, it was but, so sweet. But it wasn't then long after that that I did finally say it again with feeling. Mm -hmm, yeah, and then we we quickly started saying it back and forth over the phone. And we say it now all, all the, the time. time, like literally hundreds of times. Yeah, a day. yeah. You you guys would be grossed out yeah, by how often yeah, we say it. Yeah, but like I mean, I I definitely go like I when I say it, even when I say it in a silly way or in a, as an afterthought. Like I definitely feel like I mean it every time. Yeah, a hundred percent every single time. At the same time, saying I love you is not the only way to say I love you to your partner. And when we come out of that flashback with Gringrave and we're back into the action, the first panel back into the present day is a panel of Richter and Shatterstar passionately kissing under the moonlight, and. I, so like that's what that's what I when I when I see them fighting I go like well is this a date like mm -hmm. is, could this something that people like Shadowstar and Richter could fold into their date routine? But right after that kiss, Shatterstar yeah. pushes him through a portal even though he knows that that's Richter true. wants to come to Horace Four with him. Yeah, he rejects him immediately. So yeah, he was kind of using it as a distraction though. If he is, you know, acts of service, as I suspect, being helped by Richter would give him a sense of love. And where does Shatterstar reject him to? Like, he throws him through that portal, and Richter is now in Michigan by the lake, by the cabin. I would think that is assault on the wound. <laughs> because, like, now... You've pushed me again physically out of your life and out of this state. And I don't, I can't open a portal. How am I going to get back from Michigan? Start hitchhiking. <laughs> to New York. Rude. And then they do uh, experience an earthquake in Michigan. He is pissed. Yeah. Okay. So he, he, he does not appreciate the location. 
A whopping 56% of couples. I, I don't... wish this was a YouTube show because <laughs> like, you are winding up this pitch for this statistic. It's so adorable. I'm trying to be natural about it, but I'm also trying to keep this episode from being 19 and a half hours long. A whopping 56% of couples never or rarely ever kiss passionately. That also makes me sad. More than half of all couples with kids rarely or never passionately kiss versus 35% of child-free couples rarely or never passionately kiss. Did you ever see your parents passionately kiss? No. I did one time. Gross. In my entire life, and it was... It was gross. I yeah. I was about to go into detail, but then I decided not I like, to. When you say passionately kiss, like I saw my parents kiss, like you know, kiss on the lips, kiss on the cheek, kiss on the forehead, hug, hold hands, mm -hmm. you know, PDA. Yeah. But I never saw a tongue. Yeah. You you're saying you? Oh, I you've told me this story. I've now just had a flashback to your parents on a couch. Yeah, they were. I mean, my mom was on top of my. They were clothed, but my mom and. My mom was on top of my dad on the couch, and so I assumed they were passionately kissing. But remember, this is also self-reporting. So who knows what anybody considers passionately kissing? And I haven't seen the survey. Does it mean with tongues? I don't know. Maybe, does it just mean the emotion behind it? I have no idea. There is actually a chart on page 81, couples who rarely or never passionately kiss by duration of relationship. And you see a clear correlation. I'm just gonna show Brad for affirmation. That's a chart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you think I was just lying about what, <laughs> what, what a chart is? But it shows like the longer the relationship, the greater the percentage of people who do not passionately kiss. So I guess to keep your relationship uh, young, use tongue. Hey, hey, I made a rhyme. Definitely use tongue. Extremely unhappy couples, 56% rarely or never passionately kiss versus 26% of extremely happy couples rarely or never passionately kiss. So 25% of extremely happy, happy couples are not doing it with tongue. Seems weird. Does seem weird, but I mean, there are probably people who are just not into Frenching. Yeah, and well, and again, like, I mean, physical touch. I mean, I think there are people who are not into physical touch. And if you find, if two people who don't dig physical touch get together and, I mean, they can find passion and love just being, um, you know. Uh, and they're, of course, like asexual people. And asexual, yeah. the, like they're asexual people who are romantic. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, um, what I'm saying is there are reserved people who are romantic. Yeah, yeah. 58% of extremely happy couples share passionate kisses several times a week. But remember, guys, this is not a right or wrong. The normal bar isn't saying because 58% right. of extremely happy couples passionately kiss. To be an extremely happy couple, you have to passionately kiss. It's just showing you other ways of being romantic. Exactly, it's a normal bar. The bar is a spectrum. So there are extremely happy couples who never passionately kiss, and that could be you. This is just kind of going like, what is out there? Like What's available? Yeah, so when we say, like, we did use the W word, we used weird, but what we mean by weird is like, that's not, not how we do it, yeah. but but we're getting acquainted with what else I is going on out there. I never want to shame, whether yeah. that's kink shame or reserve shame. Or asexual shame, certainly, or aromantic shame. Some people are not into romance. But then why are they listening to this podcast? Maybe they're just curious. Welcome. 
Now, from this point forward in the comic, Richter is pretty much absent. He does not come back until the final panels of the last issue. And what we learn over the course of the next several issues, issues three, four, and five, is that Gringrave has been manipulating this Grandmaster situation because she wants to put him in an arena setting so that he can see what he once had with her. He, She wants to get back together with Shatterstar. And recapture that fame they had on Mojo 5. I don't want this episode to end without talking about my favorite panel of the entire series. And it's in issue three, after Shatterstar has landed on Horus 4 and he dons like a new costume. And, uh, you know, he, he looks, he looks super cool. In a half tee. In a half tee, midriff a Ripplin. And he is surrounded by, like, I, I thought they were, were prostitutes at first, but they might just be hedonists. And they're all up on his body because he is quite the specimen. Uh, and, and they, you know, they're like, what are your, what pleasures are you seeking? Uh, and he says, I'm not here for the flesh. Not today. Today, I'm here for the meat. And like that is like that delivery and that panel works on obviously many levels. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's you frame that panel on your wall. Like I took a screen grab of that immediately. Like that is an iconic Shatterstar panel. When I think Shatterstar going forward, that panel is what I'm going to think about. And it's beyond just like a badass catchphrase like it goes into a flashback that really contextualizes what that phrase means to him because Gringrave has caught wind that Mojo plans to mix Shatterstar's DNA with Windsong to create this like super warrior and apparently Gringrave is like a little jealous and she's like I will kill Winsong in battle today and make it look like an accident so that we can continue battling together. And Shatterstar is like, why? It couldn't <laughs> possibly be because you're attached to me in any way, right? We're not supposed to have feelings. We're just meat. Yeah, no, he got her. So for him, <laughs> like being meat is like being emotionally detached and getting it done. But over the course of these last two issues, we know and he discovers that he is not in fact there for the meat. He is there for the love, the love of his tenants. And he is able to shrug off the cameras and go like, I'm not here for my glory. I'm here to take these displaced people home. And when Shatterstar finally confronts the death sponsors, he actually makes pretty quick work of them. They're not that much of a threat. He thinks he's done, but he's still got Grandmaster to deal with. And what Grandmaster does is he implants this vision in Shatterstar's head of like, look at all the possibilities of what your life could have turned out to be and all the evils that you could have been a party to. And it's shocking to him and he he's trying to deal with everything that he saw. And Grandmaster's like, actually like, like, you know, can you even trust what you're seeing? Like, how do you know that I'm just not messing around with your atoms to make you see this stuff? 
And how do you know that your narrative is the true one and not just another fiction? And Shadowstar can't deal with this, so he lunges out in anger. He cuts off Grandmaster's head. Actually, he cuts his head into many little pieces thanks to his cool twin blades. And Grandmaster reforms. And Grandmaster reveals his ultimate plan. Why he has been doing this this entire time is because he's squared off against so many different opponents. He's had the contest of champions, but he has never encountered anybody quite like Shatterstar, where there are so many possibilities and that he could take those possibilities and turn them into physical manifestations and he could have Shatterstar fight all of his possible selves. And that's what he does. And the final battle is Shatterstar fighting a dozen clones of Shatterstar. But the important part, and this is how... Shatterstar knows that his narrative is the true one, is that the remaining tenants, yeah, he's lost two, two have died, but the remaining tenants bust out of prison yeah. and fight by his side. Yeah, because he loves them and they love him. Exactly, acts of service. And that really bolsters his confidence in himself, knowing that the glory of the arena is not who he is anymore. He is a landlord. And so he battles Grandmaster into a dimensional portal. They're popping all around the place, but they end up in Earth 1218, which is the universe that Tina Cook, the former tenant who, by the way, died uh, in this comic book. We didn't even talk about Tina, poor Tina. Uh, but what's important about Tina and her Earth 1218 is that it is like our Earth. There are no superheroes. There are no magical abilities. And most importantly, there's no immortality. There's no immortality. So while Grandmaster is there, Shadowstar can kill that dude. And now he's dead and we'll never see or hear from him again. That's how comics work. Yep. But Shadowstar falls backwards into his portal. He's floating through space. Another portal opens and Richter's hand reaches out grabs Shatterstar and pulls him back into his reality. Shatterstar is bleeding, he's wounded, his healing factor is working, but he is like holding on for dear life. And he doesn't understand like, Richter, how, how did you find me? And Julio answers, your powers, they run on sonic vibrations. Mine run on detecting and manipulating seismic activities. I just had to reach out across the universe and find your unique signature key into your vibes. Then I enhance them to bring you home to me. And then Shatterstar responds, ha, you were right, Rick. Despite it all, you and I have always been on the same wavelength. Aww. Like super romantic. You know, like I was a little disappointed when reading this comic that he sends Richter out so early on. But when you finally get to this moment in the fifth issue, that absence and then this reunion is felt all the harder because of th that because of that gap, because of that absence. And sometimes to be ready for love with the right person, you do have to do a little work on yourself. That's how the heart grows fonder. After this point, Shatterstar takes over as narrator. And I think that this is really important. This idea that for the first time, in his life, he is taking control of his narrative. Mm. So he's no longer going to be like he's sitting in the audience of Titus Andronicus, like kind of observing, but not 
fully emotionally engaging or separating himself from the stakes of life, Mm. he's going to fully engage with everything that life has to offer. And are you ready for the last line of the comic? Are we ready to end this comic? Sure. I don't remember it, but go ahead. Um, He ends the comic by saying, I'm trying to surround myself with wonderful, complicated characters. I try to live a story full of love and loss, winning and losing a story with stakes. That means something. That's about something. A story that will be noticed. That, that's interesting. Yeah, that last line kind of sticks with me. Because I thought it was about getting out of the arena. So who is he... Who is he still playing for? That, to me, sounds like he's still performing. But perhaps he is now performing for... But I don't think he means that he's faking. Like, he's no longer faking. But he wants to be noted. Noticed perhaps by the people around him, maybe? I mean, that's the... Like, so when I got done with the comic, that's what I pulled away. Like, I didn't even, like... that, That last line did not register until just now. But the takeaway I got was he was at a new spot. He's... He is not necessarily back together with Richter in that barbecue that they're having there outside the uh, tenant building. Like Richter and him aren't sitting together, but Richter is there. He's a part of his life. There is possibility for that to grow into something more. And I think Shatterstar is done with pushing possibilities away to lower the stakes for himself. Like if he's in a relationship with Richter, that means there's a future possibility of them having a horrible breakup and his heart being broken. But he still wants to live a story that is worth noting. Mm, Yeah. I mean, it's like to separate that part of yourself having been bred literally to be an entertainer, to be a fighter, to be the warrior in the arena, to shed yourself of wanting to be noted by something, I think is maybe uh, impossible for Shatterstar or that story still needs to be tied up somehow. But I do think that there is a way to engage in your life where you are not noticed because you are not close enough to anybody where if you died, no one would miss you. Or if you showed up late, no one would comment. I think he means like he wants to be noticed like he wants to be, he wants his presence to be something meaningful what to those around him. What this story taught him was that his responsibility as a tenant to these people meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. That he, like, he loves what he is doing as a landlord. And he realized what he had with Richter meant a lot and was worth fighting for. And he wants to continue exploring that relationship. And he can't do that by following Grengrave's rules of, you know, giving the people what they want and yeah. never getting emotionally attached to anyone to protect your own feelings. You you have to put your feelings on the line. So putting a button on this episode, Lisa, like what are you pulling out of Richter and Shatterstar's experiences? What are you pulling out of the normal bar to apply to your own life? The normal bar, I'm still kind of wishy-washy on. Yeah. (laughs) I do like the premise of um, being able to see, like, what are other couples doing and 
How is that working out for and them? And could we apply some of their techniques to our relationship? I think that's kind of cool. I think there's value there. I think that there's value in the raw data, but then when I'm reading the data translated as prose and then turned into advice, like there are chunks of data missing. And like, to me, I feel like if you're going to tell me the statistic for this specific age group, I want to know the statistics for all, like there should be, this book should literally just be charts. I'm less interested in the charts, in the science. I'm more interested in the idea of reaching out and observing others and applying your observations to yourself. So like to me, you could take this idea and go out to your friends and their relationships and, you know, probe and explore how are their relationships uh, achieving in, you know, small areas. Like how do you and your uh, significant other do the laundry? Let me hear it. How mm -hmm. do you do your chores? Let me hear it. But doing it in the form of like an anonymous survey, you think that you would get a lot more frank, truthful answers. But then like, you know, like is a person who goes like, I am self-reporting that I am unhappy in a, in my relationship. And then you ask them, well, how often do you say I love you? How often yeah. do you kiss? How often do you hug? Can You'd you say, trust? none, never. Yeah. We don't do anything that I like. Where maybe if somebody was following them around with a clipboard, yeah. you know, if it was more like John Gottman's love lab yeah. and they were being observed, then maybe. The source is questionable on the normal bar, but I like the concept. Me too. With Richter and Shatterstar, what I'm really pulling away as a, a life lesson I could apply today is like, if you're going to live your life fully and if you want to achieve greater things, you have to risk getting your feelings hurt. Mm. Like part of uh, achieving your aspirations is reaching, is putting yourself out there. And actually I was talking on our Slack recently about early relationships and how I used to date when I was dating. And I would never date anybody I was friends with first, was in my friend's pool. Anybody, like anybody who I was close to actually knew. I always managed to pick someone to date who was completely out of my social circle. So when it didn't work out, it was very easy for me to never see them again. Like cutting the back, like we had no mutual friends, you know, we didn't, we often had maybe one class together. Yeah, you always had an exit. And with you, Brad, that was one of the first times where like, if, okay, here's truth, truth time. You were moving. Yeah. So Brad and I started dating when he was moving away. Yeah. So if it didn't work out. I was gone. He was gone. Ha ha, but, fooled you. But I guess in the short term, it could have made work very awkward because we did work together in a, in a corporate bookstore situation. And, but like, I think that now I'm no longer dating. I'm in a very happy marriage, but I do see myself not taking risks because I'm afraid of being rejected, having my feelings hurt, you know, um, you know, outside things, of our relationship. Yeah. Even. Yeah. Like, um, uh, like, uh, 
professional aspirations or friend, like, you know, I, I want to reach out to this friend, but it's been a while. Is it going to be awkward? Like, if I want to reach the next level with my career, with my friendships, with my family, like, there are times where I don't reach out to my own family because, oh, it's been a while since I've reached out to my sister. And you've got guilt feelings. Yeah, now it's going to be awkward, and I don't want, I don't have room in my, in my emotions today to feel awkward. No time like, like the present, Lisa. Uh, yeah. I should just get over myself, go like, hey, feelings have always passed. Even the worst ones ever were temporary. The great ones are also temporary. So, you know, when you're having a great emotion, like, really embrace it. But everything, like, what, like, if you risk getting your heart broken and then it does happen, that feeling is going to be temporary. But the only thing that is definitely true is if you don't take that risk where maybe you could get your heart broken, you will never achieve what's on the other side of that risk. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Am I babbling? No. Okay. How about you, sweetheart? Have you learned anything from Richter and Shatterstar that you'd like to share with the class? I'm I, like, for me, I focus in on the ending and how they finally see how they are compatible for each other. And I think that is a good question to explore with your spouse or your partner is how do you complete each other? Like, what is it about Lisa that works, that fits so well with the puzzle piece that is Brad? And it's not just about wet spots. And it's not just about <laughs> wet spots. Uh, it, it's most certainly not about wet spots. Wet spots are not going to sustain a relationship. But I think about how you are an encouraging force in my life, how you energize me to reach beyond my own contentment. Because for me, it's very easy to just go along, get along, and enjoy, you know, kicking back and reading some comics, watching some movies, doing the same old thing, the routine. Like, I love a routine. Uh, but you're always there to, you know, give me that little bit of a jolt, a little bit of a, a push to try something new. And when I do try something new, you encourage that and you foster that. But more importantly, what I get from this comic is to ask that question, you know, so that's my answer right now while we're recording this episode. But what are all the other little ways that you help me? I'm going to need I need to I need to explore it. And I think you should explore it. I love that. I love that idea on their face, portal opening and shaky earth causing <laughs> look so different, but they're at the core, they are very similar and complementary. Compatible. There is one more thing I learned from the normal bar that I wasn't able to weave naturally into our conversation, but I think it's important to state that 70% of extremely happy couples give back rubs, <laughs> 80% of the happiest women, and 72% of the happiest men report giving back rubs. <laughs> of the happiest homosexual couples, 100% say they give and receive back rubs on a regular basis. I got it. I could give you more back rubs. I'm saying 100% of anything is statistically significant. And frankly, I think homosexual couples are onto something. All right. Back rubs. More of them. You're going to get them. Uh, next week, equally, though. Equally back and forth. Oh, you're going to give me more? Yeah, like 
100% of people getting back rubs is everybody's giving and receiving back rubs. Okay, all right. Everybody's got a More back, back rubs for everybody. But next week, we continue our exploration of the romantic habits of the X-Men by diving into extreme X-Men issues 36 through 39, a.k.a. The Arena, written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by Igor Cordy. The couple focus of these issues is Storm and the Morlock leader Callisto. These two were championed by Sarah Century, friend of the pod, co-host of Bitches on Comics, as well as a comic creator and filmmaker in her own right. We've never read these stories, and many think that they're trash, but Sarah says this is the story you need to dig into to properly understand the appeal of the Storm and Callisto relationship. Special bonus, this will be the first return of Chris Claremont's writing since our very first episode digging into Scott Summers and Jean Grey as seen in the Dark Phoenix saga, and we all know what a soft spot this writer claims in Lisa's heart. Yeah. Okay, Brad, open a portal because it's time <laughs> for us to exit this arena. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. They still got wet parts. It's still got wet parts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>